This, well, this morning's scripture reading is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. We're beginning uh, I sound different. I don't know if I sound better or worse or the same. Same different. I'm not sure if you can be the same different. Um, we're beginning a new series this morning on the theme of our work. And uh, the subtitle of the series is Finding Balance, Purpose, and Fulfillment. And what we're going to be looking at is what the Bible says about our work, because Christianity offers a unique perspective on the subject. So what that means is that if you're a Christian, you should have a unique perspective on the subject, and I'm hoping that these sermons can help you in some small way to develop that. And what it also means is if you're you're not a Christian, I'll make no point of hiding the fact that these sermons are intended as an advertisement for you. I want to sell you on how good Christianity is. And one of the ways you can see how good it is, is by the way it affects and transforms our work. So my hope is that wherever you are along the spiritual spectrum from believer to non-believer to somewhere in between, that there's something in these sermons that, that interests you and that you can benefit from. So this morning we're just going to jump right into it with a sermon titled Faith and Work. And the question I want to ask this morning is, how does our faith affect our work? And specifically, how does faith and the Christian faith in particular benefit our working lives? How does it it affect our work for the better? And I want to give a threefold answer to that question. There's many more than three ways that that happens, but we just have time to look at three this morning. Three things Christianity provides you when it comes to your work. First, it gives you a nobler vision of work. Second, it gives you stronger guidelines for your work. And third, it gives you enduring optimism in your work. A nobler vision of your work, stronger guidelines for your work, and enduring optimism in your work. Those will be the three sections to this morning's sermon, and we'll take them one at a time. So first, a nobler vision of your work. The first thing Christianity does to work is it exalts it. It puts it in a nobler, more dignified 
light. And this is in contrast to uh, an ideal you'll, you'll hear in the culture, which is that work is kind of seen as this necessary evil, this unpleasant thing you have to do to make money. And so the idea is to make as much money as possible while working as little as possible and retiring as early as possible. That's not the way the Bible sees it. What the Bible says, what it shows us, is in the opening scene of the Bible, God himself at work. He's working. He's, and he's doing it day by day. He shows up every morning and starts the job again where he left off the day before. He's building something. God himself working. And then not only that, but the culmination of his work is human beings who he charges with work. He makes these people and then he tells them to work two things. He says, be fruitful and multiply. He charges them to have children, raise children. We'll come back to that in a second. And then he says, rule the earth and subdue it. You heard all this in this morning's scripture reading. And the meaning of that second phrase, rule the earth and subdue it, isn't totally clear until you go to chapter 2. And there's a parallel phrase that helps explain it. He says in chapter 2, it says that God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to, quote, work it and care for it. That's Genesis 2, verse 15. So a couple things to note about all this. The first thing to note is just that there's work in paradise. We think of paradise as the absence of work, but in scripture there's work in Eden, there's work before sin, there's work before the fall, there's work in a perfect world. And what that means is that God made us to work, and work is part of a fulfilled life. Anyone who's been out of work for any length of time can testify to that. But the second thing this shows us, and this is really where we're going with this first section of the sermon, the second thing to note here is that the type of work that Adam and Eve are engaged in is similar in kind to the type of work that God himself does. So what's the nature of God's work? If you go back to the beginning of chapter 1, the opening lines of the whole Bible, it says, the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. In other words, it's empty, it's chaotic, it's shapeless, it has no order. And then it says, the Spirit of God hovered over the water and brought out of this disorder and chaos, brought order, brought beauty, brought good things for human flourishing, made something beautiful. Basically, God rearranged this raw material, this stuff that wasn't good for anything, and made it into something that promoted human well-being which is exactly what he asks Adam and Eve to do. That's what their job as gardeners essentially is. That's what it means to be a gardener. You take this raw material, this stuff that he provided with them, dirt and, and seeds, you know, the plants that he had created and water, and he says, work it, care for it, make something good out of this, something that promotes human well-being. Now, it's not just gardening. This comparison between God's work and our work, it doesn't just apply to gardening. It applies to every type of work. It applies across the board. And so I want to take a few seconds to show you how that works. I want to start with the easier examples, things that are similar to gardening, where you're working with the physical world, like construction and engineering and architecture. Same thing there, where you're rearranging raw materials. You're taking this stone and steel and glass and you're using your God-given creativity, you're using your God-given intellect to, according to these mathematical principles that are written into the fabric of the universe, these laws that you can't violate, like gravity and force and inertia, you try to build something. You come together and you try to build something, like a building that people can live in. And you try to make it not only functional, but you try to make it beautiful as well. Or let's say you build something that connects people, that brings people together and creates community like a bridge across a river where you've got people on two sides of a river and then all of a sudden you build a bridge and they're in community now. I'm just finishing up a book on the building of the Brooklyn 
bridge. And what reading this book has done for me is it's created in me a sense of awe and gratitude every time I look at the bridge. My family's gotten used to me wanting to detour a couple of blocks this way or that way when we're walking around town just to catch a glimpse of it. And when I look at it, I don't think, wow, look what man has accomplished. What I think is how good is God? How wise is God? How gracious is God? That he created us in his image, just like him, to be able to create as he creates, to be able to work as he works, and to be able to even improve upon his creation. That's the astounding thing about this Genesis passage, is when, it, when he says to Adam and Eve, I want you to work, for the, work the garden, I want you to take care of it. That doesn't mean maintain the status quo. What it means is improve it. So he made the garden garden perfect, and then he says to Adam and Eve, I want you to make it better. I want you to improve upon my creation. And work at its best, that's exactly what work does. You know, the Brooklyn Bridge, it doesn't detract from the East River. It doesn't mar God's creation. It doesn't even distract from the East River. Rather, what it does is it enhances God's creation. It makes creation itself better. This honor and this privilege of joining God in his work. You say, okay, so gardening, construction, engineering, building bridges, fine. I kind of see the the analogy there with that and what God does, but I don't do any of those things. So how does this apply to other fields? So let's keep going. Uh, The arts, for example, music. It's taking the raw material of sound and turning that into something that mysteriously we can't live without. We had a whole sermon on that a few weeks back about how we have to have music to thrive as human beings. Or the, the storytelling arts, theater and writing and filmmaking, where you're taking this chaos of human experience, this disorder, and you're shaping it into something orderly. And those stories are the way that we make sense of our lives. Or take uh, technology. Technology is really easy. This is the exact same as construction and engineering and architecture, except that you're, you're constructing and engineering and architecting with ones and zeros instead of with brick and mortar. And you're building these digital platforms and structures and bridges. And you take this chaos of ones and zeros and almost miraculously create something where two people can talk to each other face-to-face, even though they're thousands of miles apart. Take the professional fields like medicine or law. Medicine is just trying to bring order out of chaos within the human body, just as God brought order out of chaos within the cosmos. Law is trying to bring order out of chaos within human relationships, in the sphere of human relationships, so that people can know what to expect when they're dealing with one another. Even investment banking, even finance, I know you thought, well, that must be the one exception. I mean, surely that can't be divine work. But even that, it's the exact same thing. At its best, you're just rearranging this raw material of capital. You're looking for a void and emptiness, using your creativity and ingenuity to move stuff around so that human flourishing is promoted, so that this, this person that has this idea that wouldn't have otherwise been able to get off the ground can get off the ground. And maybe my favorite, lastly, my favorite example of how this paradigm applies to work is with respect to the work of raising children. I mentioned that a second ago. That's the only other job besides the gardening that God explicitly charges Adam and Eve with. And one of the least understood aspects of raising children today is that it's a job, that it's work. It's not like, oh, it's a lot of work. No, it is work. It is essentially work. It is a project. You get this sense people think it's like something you do 
as a lifestyle choice, you know, like you have kids because you're lonely or bored or something. But that's not what it is. What it is, and this is something that previous generations understood and that now we've lost sight of, is it's actually this completely non-optional work that somebody has to do for the human race to flourish and survive. That's why God charges Adam and Eve with this work. And it fits the paradigm perfectly. If there's ever anything where you're trying to bring order out of chaos, it's raising children. You take this blob, this, this raw material of a, of a human being that's, you know, can't even survive on its own. You have to attach yourself to it physically. You have to care for it every day. You have to shape it with your words and with your hands and with the way that you look at it day after day after day. And if you do your job right, this weak, dependent body becomes independent and strong. And this chaotic soul and mind becomes orderly and educated such that, you know, this animal that would bite and scream and hit is now a semblance of a person. It's work. It's work. It's a, it's a job. And not only is it work, it's holy work. It's sacred work. It's God's work. Just as everything we just mentioned, every type of field we just mentioned, is God's work. People sometimes say about what I do, you know, uh, being a pastor or minister, well, that's God's work, you know. Good for you. You're doing the Lord's work. And the, the point of the last few minutes is to say, well, so are you. You know, the, the Bible doesn't open with the Spirit of God preaching a sermon or singing a song. It opens with the Spirit of God building something. And what that means is that every type of work has a nobility and has a dignity that we might not have otherwise before realized. That's the first thing that Christianity provides us when it comes to our work. The first thing it gives us is it gives us a nobler vision of our work. So moving on to section number two. Secondly, the second thing Christianity gives us for our work, the second way it improves our work, is it gives us stronger guidelines for our work. And here I'm talking about moral guidelines. It gives us more rigid moral boundaries within which we operate when we do our work. Now, before I start the section, I want to acknowledge that one of the biggest pet peeves of atheists is when you suggest that somehow religious belief automatically makes a person moral and the lack of religious belief automatically makes a person immoral. And that's a perfectly legitimate grievance because obviously that's not the case. That's patently false. And we've talked about this many times before on Sundays that if you pick out one atheist at random and one Christian at random, it could easily be the case that the atheist is far more virtuous than the Christian. So that is... don't. In this section, everything I'm about to say, don't take it along those lines, because that's not how I mean it at all. The way it should be taken is just thinking personally, thinking about yourself and not comparing any two people in the abstract, but just thinking about you. Let's say you want to be moral, and you probably do if you're like most people. Let's say you want to do the right thing all of the time, not just some of the time, even when it hurts. My contention is Christianity makes that easier. It gives you resources. It gives you support that makes it easier to do that. In two ways. There are going to be two subsections to this this, uh, second section of the sermon because there's two things that Christianity does to shore up our moral guidelines for our work. First thing it does is it tells us that God cares, and the second thing it does is that it tells us that people matter. God cares and people matter. So we'll take those one at a time. So first, this idea that God cares. What the Bible teaches is that these, these moral guidelines that everybody intuitively knows, obviously they're not unique to Christianity, you know, don't lie. Don't cheat, don't steal, that sort of thing. 
Everybody knows those guidelines, whether they believe or not. But what the Bible says is those aren't just societal norms. Those aren't just cultural expectations. Those aren't just ways that we get along with one another. Rather, those are eternal lines that God cares about very deeply, and it upsets him emotionally. It affects him emotionally when they're violated. So there's all these places where it talks in Scripture about how much God hates dishonest business practices in particular. And he goes on these long tirades against things like exorbitant interest rates and unjust economic policies. Or one specific example that comes up a lot is uh, this idea of false weights and measures. He's really upset about false weights and measures. In other words, you've got a scale that's off. You know it's off. So your customer thinks they're getting a pound of wheat, but really they're getting nine-tenths of a pound. He goes on and on about these sorts of things. What it says is not only does this stuff upset him, but it also says that someday he's going to come and he's going to balance the scales himself. He's going to right all those wrongs and he's going to bring justice to those who were the perpetrators and who were the ones that came out ahead. Now, if you believe that, what that means is that in these instances where you might be tempted to fudge because nobody else is going to see, you're not going to be as tempted to fudge because you know that the one person that does matter, your creator and your judge, is still going to see and that may seem childish to you, like, oh, God's watching, so you know, don't do anything bad. But I want to reverse the charge and say I think it's pretty childish and naive of you if you don't admit that our society could use a lot more of exactly this type of fear and trembling. In a world where there's a new business scandal every week, in a world where a different congressman or senator has to resign for ethics violations every month, I think the one thing that's clear is that this motivation of, well, I'm just going to do what's right because I want to be true to myself. You know, that's a strong enough motivation for me. I think it's pretty clear that when the stuff hits the fan, that doesn't work. That doesn't cut it. It's not enough. Christian Smith is this uh, sociologist at the University of Notre Dame. And he came out with a book in 2009 called Souls in Transition, which was the results of his interviews, extensive interviews with all these 20-somethings in the U.S. So he does hundreds of interviews, and one of the things he talked about was morality. So one thing he found, which isn't a surprise, is that uh, people, regardless of their religious beliefs, had strong sense of right and wrong. We said that already. So then he asked as a follow-up question, once that was established, he asked this question. He said, so your feelings about right and wrong, do you think that those are subjective feelings that are just personal to you, or do you think those are based on some objective moral reality outside of you? And what he said is that 90% of the people he asked that question to didn't even understand the question. They, they had no idea what he was talking about. It wasn't, it's this or that. They just they were clueless. They had no idea what he was saying. You say, why does that matter? It matters because the solidness of your convictions is the, the salient fact. It's not that you have them. Everybody has them. It's what are you going to do when those convictions come up against intense pressure, when the reward for violating them is extremely high and the risk for violating them is extremely low. My least favorite class in law school was the ethics course, professional responsibility. They don't even have ethics in the name of the course anymore, and they don't even have ethics in the content of the course anymore. There's not, there's not a discussion of morality or right and wrong in the abstract. It's just a discussion of the whole class is just discussing these technical rules on the books that govern lawyers and what counts as breaking those rules but also what doesn't count is breaking those rules. And all these people that got right up to the line but didn't actually break the rules. So what the course ends up being 
is an expert's guide to being a dishonest lawyer without being disbarred. It's, it's this guide to that. So, and that's the ethics that's being taught in law schools and in medical schools and in business schools. And it's not enough. It's not doing the job. But what if instead you had people who played by a different playbook? People that didn't fear the American Bar Association, and they didn't fear the SEC, and they didn't fear whatever regulatory agency, because instead they feared a God who said, don't you dare use false weights and measures. If you believe that, then you have something, you have a resource that can help you to do right and to be the person you want to be, even in the pressure cooker of business when there's extreme temptation to do otherwise. But as I said, there's two ways that Christianity shores up our moral guidelines and makes them stronger for our work. The first is by teaching us that God cares. But the second thing is it also teaches us that people matter. So it's not just that God is watching. It's also this idea that you saw in today's scripture reading, the line where it says, we're created in the image of God, that every single human being has worth and dignity just because God made them. We've talked about this before half a dozen times on Sunday, this, this idea of the image of God, the imago dei in Latin. And we've talked about how it was the basis of the civil rights movement. We've talked about how it was actually the source of the idea of human rights more broadly. This morning, I want to apply it to business and just say that it also gives you this different perspective on your business where you look at every person that you're dealing with and realize that their interests matter just as much as yours do. Because there's a type of doing business, there's a way of doing business in which you benefit but others are hurt. There's an approach to business in which the the bottom line, the only bottom line is profit. And the only priority, the only number one priority is profit. It's the only thing that's non-negotiable. Everything else is up for discussion. But if you're a Christian, you're obviously profit is going to be the bottom line. So it's going to be one of the things that's primary. But you're not, you don't have the luxury of saying, well, only this is primary and everything else is negotiable. You're going to have several non-negotiables. You're not going to be able to just think about profit. You're going to also have to think about the people that you're making a profit from. I heard the story recently of a Christian businessman who owns a bunch of car dealerships. And at his dealerships, like most dealerships, the the salesman on the floor had very wide latitude to negotiate the price. And so he didn't think anything of this. You know, it's just kind of the way things were done until he came across a study that was written of all these car dealerships of the industry that said that because the salesmen were predominantly white men, guess who tended to get the best deals? white men, other white men. Women did significantly worse on average than men in negotiating a price, and non-white women did worst of all. They got the worst deals of all. So this this guy that owns all the dealerships reads this, and he says, well, that's unfair. That's unjust. Every one of these people is worth just as much as I am. And so he ends the practice of negotiation in all his dealerships. He sets a, a fixed price, essentially, with very little wiggle room. And when he was asked... Did that cut into your profits? He said, yeah, it did. So then he was asked as a follow-up, but don't you think that you're going to make all of that back in the long run, you know, through, through higher employee uh, retention and morale and through better customer satisfaction and better public relations? Don't you think in the long run you'll come out ahead? And what he said is, I don't care. Maybe, maybe we will, maybe we won't, but that's not why we did it. We did it because it's right. And this idea that people matter changes the way you're going to approach your business. And you could say, well, can't you have the idea that people matter without the idea that God made them? And sure, that's, that's perfectly 
possible. But my point in all of this is just that it's going to be your belief in that without God, it's going to be less strong and it's going to be less emotionally accessible. So we've talked before about how Immanuel Kant, the most influential philosopher of the last 500 years, his project was to take Christian ethics, Jesus's ethics, and to set them on a secular foundation. And most philosophers feel that he was pretty much successful. He kind of logically proved these things. So his expression of this idea that people are made in the image of God and have inherent worth, the way he puts that is every human being has to be treated as an end in themselves, not a means to an end. That's his kind of formulation of it. And you can believe that. You can take Kant's doctrine and you know think that that's going to do the work in just the same way. But the problem is, again, it's the pressure. The problem is when, when there's temptation to do otherwise. And then all you've got is this this thing that some German philosopher said a couple hundred years ago that may be true or may not be true, and you're going to ditch it, versus the belief that God made you and the belief that God made every single person you're dealing with, that he made your customers, that he made your colleagues, he made your employees, he made your students, he made every one of them, he knit them together in their mother's womb. That's different. That's going to change the way you see things. So that's the second thing that Christianity does for us with respect to our work is it gives us stronger guidelines. Not different guidelines, it just strengthens the guidelines we already have. And it does that by telling us that God cares and by telling us that people matter. Third and finally this morning, the the last section of the sermon, the last thing that Christianity does for us in our work, at least the last thing we're going to have time to talk about today, is that it gives us enduring optimism. Optimism. Why do, you, why do you need optimism in your work? Well, we were talking in section one about how work is this really good, beautiful thing that God created, that it existed in Eden, that we're joining God on the work of creation, you know, this very high, noble, dignified, exalted view of work. But the truth is, that's only half the story. Because what happens in Genesis 3, which was just beyond this morning's scripture reading, you know, if you fast forward a chapter, is that work itself, this good thing that God made, falls under a curse. And this is one of the effects of Adam and Eve choosing to sin and to rebel against God. There's this place where God explains what the consequences of that are going to be. He's explaining to them, now that you've unleashed sin in the world, here's what that's going to look like. And one of the things he says is going to look like is work is going to be cursed. He says to Adam, he says, now you will produce food from the ground by the sweat of your brow. Now the ground will produce thorns and thistles for you. In other words, I made work to be good, I made work to be fulfilling, I made work to be a source of joy only. But now, along with all those good things, work is also going to be, for you, a source of intense frustration. And anybody who's ever worked a day in their life already knows that. These thorns and thistles that plague our work, the frustration that accompanies our work, can take all kinds of different forms. Just to mention a few, it can be because of uh, ineffectiveness and inefficiency. You You can't get done what you want to get done. You just can't make it happen. There's these obstacles that you run up against and you see it, but you just can't get there. And so there's frustration with that. It can be often because of other people, you know, the thorns and thistles are these other people that are getting in your way. It can be because of your boss, you know, this person that makes work unpleasant because they're unfair and because they don't treat you with any respect. It can be because there are larger forces at play within your industry or within your company such that you can't do the kind of work that you wanted to do. You're being pushed this way or pushed that way and you have no control out of it. It's, it's out of your hands, whether it's office politics or whether it's, you know, macroeconomic stuff. 
It can be because you can't get a job doing what God made you to do because of market demands. You know, so this is what pays and this is what you're supposed to do and they don't match. So instead to, to pay the bills, you have to do something that you're not even really that good at and you don't love because that's just the way the world is today. That's just a few of hundreds of ways that our work can become deeply frustrating, that these thorns and thistles come in and make work something that instead of fulfilling us, just upsets us and sucks life out of us instead of giving life to us. And that's where optimism comes in, and that's where optimism is needed. So the third thing Christianity gives this enduring optimism. And really what this third section of the sermon is, is it's nothing more than an extension of the Easter sermon from two weeks ago. If you were here for that sermon, you know that we talked about the hope of Easter. And the hope of Easter is that this life is not all there is, that there's a world to come, that there's life beyond death. And that that means then that the way your story ends in this life is not the way that it's going to end ultimately, necessarily. And so taking that and applying it to our work. That's all we're doing here. What that means is that your work is going to look different from the other side. However frustrating it is now, it's going to look different from the other side. So uh, there's this place in Colossians, this great verse where Paul says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. For you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as your reward is the Lord Jesus Christ you are serving. And it's a great verse. It's an inspirational verse. A lot of people you know, say, oh, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. What's often overlooked about that verse is that the, the group of people that Paul's talking to when he says, whatever you do, work for the Lord and not for men, it's the Lord Christ you're serving. He's talking to a group of slaves. Now, critics have taken that, critics of the Bible have taken that and said, well, see, there you have it. The Bible supports slavery. You know, it says that, that these slaves should be passive and, you know, be obedient to their masters. But that's not it at all, because Paul's not commenting on slavery as an institution. He's talking to slaves that have no choice whether they're slaves or not, and they have to figure out how to approach their lives. And what he says is, sometimes you are going to find yourself in an unjust employment situation. Sometimes you're going to find yourself in a work environment that is deeply unsatisfying and you don't have a choice. And slavery is obviously the ultimate example of that to the nth degree, but there are other lesser examples of that. He says in that circumstance, there is still, even then, a case to be made for optimism because it's the Lord God that you're working for. You're working for him, not for men. And what he's going to make sure of is he's fair. He's always fair. He's a fair boss. He's going to make sure that you get your reward. He's going to make sure that you get your inheritance in the end. And I love thinking about that. I love thinking about, you know, thinking about American slavery in particular, these slaves working on these Southern plantations that every day of their lives, they got up, They worked hard, and at the end of the day, they had their work products stolen from them by the plantation owners. I love thinking about, in the world to come, that wealth being stripped from the plantation owners and returned to the people that worked for it, the the people that earned it, because God was watching. God was paying attention, and he knew the whole time that they were going to get it because they worked faithfully for him. And if it applies in that most extreme of circumstances, it applies in these lesser circumstances that we find ourselves in. Even if you feel like your work is not being noticed, it is being noticed. Even if you feel like your work doesn't matter, it will matter someday. Even if you feel like you're never going to get credit for it, you will get credit for it someday. And even if you feel like your work is never going to be completed, you know, this thing that you have that you want to do, you're not going to be able to accomplish it. 
It will be accomplished someday if you stay at it, if you stay faithful. On that last one, this idea that your work will be accomplished someday even if you can't accomplish it in this life. There's a a short story by J.R.R. Tolkien, and we'll close with this, that he wrote during a a time in his life when he, you know, he was working on the Lord of the Rings trilogy and he'd been working on it for decades and it hit an impasse and he, he thought that he wasn't going to be able to finish it. And he thought that his life's work was going to come to nothing. And so he writes this story about a painter who has this grand vision of this beautiful tree. That's unlike any tree he's ever actually seen before in nature. He's only seen it in his mind's eye. And he actually believes the tree is a vision from God that he's been charged with God to paint this tree. So he gets this huge canvas and he says, I'm going to devote my life to painting this tree. This is going to be my contribution to mankind. And he starts and he starts and he starts again and he fails. He just can't do it. He cannot get onto the canvas what he has in his mind. And eventually he dies. And when he dies, on this huge canvas, it's completely empty except for a single leaf. That's all he finished and his entire life was basically wasted. So he gets to heaven. And as he's approaching the heavenly city, he sees something and something catches his eye. He runs up to it. And Tolkien writes this. He says, before him stood the tree. His tree finished, if you could say that, of a tree that was alive, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind in a way that he had so often felt or guessed but had been so often unable to catch. He gazed at the tree and slowly he lifted his arms and opened them wide. And if you believe the Christian gospel like Tolkien did, and that's not just a, a nice little fable. That's true. That's real. There really is a tree, whatever that is for you. Your work really will be completed because God's going to make sure. Remember what his plan was? To enable us to join him in the work of creation. And that applies to the new creation as well. He's going to make sure that your work is included in the new creation. That's a source of enduring optimism. So that's, that's, there you have it, three things that Christianity gives us with respect to our work. It gives us a nobler vision. It gives us stronger guidelines. It gives us an enduring optimism. Let's pray.